0: Got a couple stories so far. Let me read a couple of them. People who had given money, and we're going to have a video of somebody who has put up uh, their own little $10 giveaway story. Um, first one was this. This is a guy who comes to Texas. He said, I drive down to another town every week for my work. I routinely stop at a McDonald's in Ligoti for a pit stop. So this guy works far away. There is more often than not a thin elderly lady nibbling on her breakfast, always alone, always sitting in the same seat, staring out the window. I haven't talked with her, but in my haste to get back on the road, I've made eye contact once or twice and smiled at her. Within 15 minutes of the sermon ending last week, this woman popped into my head. And I knew that's to whom I should give my $10. On Thursday morning, I came out of the restaurant, restroom, walked over to her and said, Hi, you don't know me, and this may seem a bit strange, but the Lord told me to give this to you. She smiled and grabbed my hand and said, Thank you. Then I was back out the door and on my way. Being a strong introvert, I don't have trouble meeting people when there's a reason to talk with them. But to initiate conversation with a stranger for no apparent reason, like a sales rep might do, is very awkward. Nevertheless, it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be, since I told myself I was just being obedient to the Lord and he would take care of the rest. Nothing earth-shattering here, but I hope it blessed blessed this little lady. Another person wrote this. I gave $10 to one of the parents of a child at my school. She was talking about how she was taking in extra kids for the holiday weekend. Financially, they struggle— so, no, so extra miles to feed could be a hardship. I gave the money to her anonymously in a card, so I'm not sure how she responded. All right? Uh, and then there's one up here, let me get it up here. Um, Brian Grondike uh, did his own little video version, so let's watch and see what Brian did with his $10. Exciting so your gratitude,
1: and as you it, chemistry here at IU, And this is my $10 for your year type deal. Uh, I guess, so the interesting thing would be of the calling before uh, the ten dollars was passed out. As I was listening to Matt's sermon last Sunday on generosity, I started thinking, you know, I should be more generous, and I thought the best way to do this would be to take some of my colleagues out for lunch on the following Monday. A lot of times we'll go out for lunch together, and so I thought, you know, let's just go ahead and I'll, I'll, I'll foot the bill. There are two guys in particular that I work with that I was hoping to take out do this for regardless of whether or not I told them why I was doing it. Other uh, names are Brendan and John. They're two great guys but very, very strong atheists and uh, they refuse to, to really talk about religion. Um, so you know, I was hoping this would kind of be like a foot in the doorway. And then maybe a minute later you know, the $10 was passed out and I was like, alright, I gotta do this. And So on Monday uh, the, the $10 story turned turned out to be like a, a $25 story. Um, <laughs> my colleagues, and later on John asked me why I had done this, and I, you know, I mentioned how uh, this was a thing that we were doing at church, and I just you know, felt like it was the right thing to do, and he thought it was pretty cool, and that was really the first time that I've opened up about my faith to him. He, he's known that I'm a Christian, I've worked with him for a year, but it's really the first time I've ever sort of discussed it, because he's been so closed to religion. And then I guess there's a second sort of story. scrounging around for spare change with some of the other cars, and he's been saying, he's trying to get some spare change for a a can of fix a flat to fix a flat tire, and I asked how much it is, it's like it's 10 bucks. and so I still had that $10 bill in my pocket, and I thought, you know, this is the perfect opportunity, and so overall, my hear and respond type story ended up being about $35. (laughs) It really felt great, and the last couple weeks I've been praying to be more generous and, and be more good my life, and so this, this past week was a great chance for me to actually lift that out. So that's my little uh, hear and response story.
0: Huh. Good. So uh, if you had that, if you still have the card and if it's on the website, there's different ways, like I said, Dan uh, set up a Twitter account and uh, you can, like Brian did, just video yourself in your dorm room. I don't know if you noticed he had an open closet, I think some dirty clothes on the floor, I don't know if you noticed that, but um, he didn't stage it, obviously. But uh, if, if uh, email, even like one of the emails was just a short two or three sentences. So it doesn't have to be long, it doesn't have to be short. But again, it's an exercise for all of us not only to hear God, but to give, give away money. And let me say this, money is life because money was earned by somebody who gave their time and energy to do that. So it's kind of like if our mission is release life, we're, we're letting go of things. It's a good picture of letting go and giving away and releasing things toward others for the sake of Jesus, all right? And like, like one person said in the, I, you know, God told me to give this to you. And you notice Brian didn't necessarily say it that way to his friend. However you feel like God's telling you to say it. You may not need to say, Jesus told me to buy lunch for you all. I mean, that may not be what God's telling you to do. So do it however you feel like Jesus is telling you to do it. All right? Good? All right, let's pray. Uh, and for those of you who have $10 and you end up spending it on yourself, may God have mercy on your soul. Anyway. <laughs> Unless God tells you to spend it on yourself. And he might. He might tell you to celebrate his goodness by... Getting yourself a mocha frappuccino, we know whatever those you know. All right, let's pray. God, we're going to look in Your Word, and we thank You for Your Word. Um, and I think the opening song, one of the lines was, "May Your Word come with power." So, God, Your Word through Your Spirit, uh, may it have the power that You intend for it to have in every single one of our lives. And we ask this all in Christ's name, Amen. A couple stories I may tell because both of these stories revolve around me with the challenging question of, do I really trust Jesus? And you might say, well, you're a pastor. Of course you do. Well, but it's challenging. Here's story number one. I was in seminary, and I really started struggling with the idea of eternal judgment, hell. And I just thought, I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of hard to swallow. Eternal judgment, um, punishment for those who don't respond to God I'm in seminary I'm wanting to be a pastor so but and I remember thinking I've always believed this but it just seems so not like the God I would want And, and then I started thinking through I thought okay wait a minute I know the Bible says talks about hell but I also know that Jesus talks as if he believes in eternal judgment and granted there's all kinds of variations and different extremes of how people think about hell. But I do believe the Bible teaches eternal judgment. And I, and I realized, but Jesus believed that. It seemed like Jesus believed in eternal judgment. And my faith is not, I don't, I don't believe like the set of truths. Christianity is a relationship with Jesus. And if I trust Jesus, and if Jesus believed that, then I have to believe it. Jesus believed something about eternal judgment. So I had to come to the point where I realized... No, this is a trust issue. It's not just a I believe it's true. It's no. I trust Jesus. I trust this guy. And if he believed and talked about the kind of eternal judgment that are, that are that's reserved for those who don't want anything to do with God, then I have to trust him on that one. So again, it was a relational trust issue. It wasn't a I just believe it. It was no, I trust Jesus second I trust Jesus story was seven, eight years ago. And I remember feeling like in my marriage, I was, and this probably wasn't true, this was my feeling, I was giving more than I was getting back. All right? Now, like I said, it probably wasn't true, but that was what I was feeling. And I felt like God was saying, I want you to give more to your wife. Give more of yourself. Give more energy. Give more attention. Give more, just give more of yourself. And I remember... Clearly, one night whining to God, well, who's going to give to me? What about me? I mean, if I keep giving and giving and giving, I was a math major. I understand how math works. If you give more than you get in, eventually the tank goes dry. And I thought, God, I'm already feeling dry. If I to keep giving to her and I have to keep giving you know, to other people, I just know how that works. I even had physics in college. I know that doesn't, I know I have to go empty. And I, and I clearly sense Jesus say to me, will you trust me to pour into you? I'll pour into you. I will, I, will, I will figure out and I will pour into you life. You don't need to manipulate other relationships to get from them what you want. And I remember having that decision, am I going to trust Jesus with this one? Because he said, if I want to, go to the next slide here. He said... If you try to hang on to your life, you lose it. But if you give your life for my sake, you'll save it. Now, I had to come to the point where I thought, do I trust him? It's like any other relationship. Do you trust when somebody says something that it's true? Or is Jesus just repeating some kind of hallmark phrase that we think is kind of nice and pleasant, but it's not a personal issue we have to deal with? No, this is really a personal issue we all have to deal with. If Jesus said it, then it's true. And it's true for every single relationship you have. It's true about your money. It's true about your time. It's true about everything. But had to wrestle with. I do. I trust him. So, uh, go to the next slide. One of the things uh, we've been in the last couple of weeks. We've been talking about kind of the DNA of Exodus. Who are we? What are we all about? And uh, we, our mission. The way we state our mission is where our mission is to release life. Jesus said he came to release captives, recovery of sight for the blind, and so when we release. Life to others were doing what Jesus did, releasing life, not just $10 bills, Well, that's part of a picture of releasing life. But I also got an email this last week from somebody in the church who said, there, They really, had, last week I also challenged you that if you have somebody in your life that's hard for you to forgive, I challenge you to sometime on your own in private say out loud to God, God, please don't hold their sins against them, kind of like Stephen did or like Jesus did on the cross. And this person said they verbalized that out loud to God by themselves and they cried all afternoon. But they're releasing life because they're releasing the forgiveness of God onto others. So releasing life is anything you do because of the spirit of Jesus in you that pours out into others because you're confident that God's going to pour into you, right? So that's our mission. And we've talked about our, our strategy is simply stretching beyond comfort. Because that's the whole Bible is full of stories of men and women as well as girls and boys who were asked to do things they didn't think they could do, but God knew they could do if he gave them the power and they let him do that. So our strategy anything to do, this stress began on comfort. Now, one of the statements we say next is kind of our opening statement for our mindset and our values is we trust Jesus. All right, we trust Jesus. Actually, we have a... One-page document that's our church's, some churches call it a statement of faith or a doctrinal statement. It's basically saying this is who we are. This is, our, this is what we believe are the truths that shape who we are. It's called We Trust Jesus, just one page. Because the, the essence of your, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, the essence of your faith is not I believe the Bible or I want to be a good person. The essence of your faith is... I trust Jesus. And if Jesus says that, I trust him. Not just because the Bible tells me so, but because Jesus believes that to be true, and I trust him. So everything we do, every belief we have is anchored on the reality of this relational trust we have with Jesus. Because Christianity, correctly interpreted, I believe, is, first of all, a relational religion and a supernatural one. It's not just a moral thing. It's not just you believe the right things and you're in, you don't, you're out. It's a relational, supernatural religion, and there's none like it in the world in that way. So we say we trust Jesus. And let me just go over a couple highlights of the phrases we use here in terms of just some statements. And then I'll, all right, we say we believe Jesus is God showing himself to us. We believe at Exodus that Jesus is God showing himself to us. The Bible says in the book of Colossians, which is a letter Paul wrote to Christians in a Greek city of Colossae, says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. It actually says he's, the word is icon. So it's kind of like if you click on the Jesus icon on your screen, it goes to the deeper program, which says God. So we believe Jesus is God showing himself to us, not Like a God, not a really good person, but he is God showing himself to us. Second thing, uh, these are just excerpts. We believe his virgin birth and his physical resurrection confirm his teaching is authentic and authoritative. So we believe what some people think are unbelievable things. But again, if the basis of our faith is relational and spiritual, supernatural, we believe these things. And they're a foundation. And again, we believe it because Jesus believed that about himself. All right? Last one of the statements here is this. We believe, uh, go to the next one. Oh, there it is. Oh, no, no, you had it, you had it. I was, I was not reading it, Cressley. Go on. We trust Jesus' teaching that life with God is uniquely accessible through him. Key phrase, uniquely. Jesus believed and he taught that no one can know God except through his work on their behalf. So we believe that. There's many, there, there's, Many roads to Jesus, but there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus. You know what I'm saying? There are many roads to Jesus. Jesus will go down any road he has to to get somebody's attention. But Jesus himself believed there's only one way to know God, and it's through him. And it's unique. So we're not just doing something that's just a personal preference for Americans in Midwest, uh, Midwest, USA, in the year 2013. We're doing something, and we believe something that has been true for all times, all generations, all cultures. There are people around the world today that believe this, and there are people throughout the centuries that believe this because Jesus believed this about himself. All right, now, go to the next one. Let me ask you to fill in the blank here. If you were to use a descriptive word about Jesus, what would you say? Jesus is. Some people might say, Jesus is God, Jesus is good, He's kind, He's loving. And we use all kinds of ways to describe him. If you ask people you know that aren't necessarily Christians, they'll have an opinion about Jesus. And it'd probably be, he was a good teacher, you know, whatever. And you might have your own opinions, shaped by what you understand the Bible to say, that you would describe Jesus with. So if we trust this guy, we need to make sure we understand who he is and what he's all about. And let me, I'm going to use the phrase that I am, is my favorite phrase in describing Jesus And that's this. Jesus is dangerously good. Jesus is a dangerously good man. Dangerous people, and I'm going to read this passage in a second. Dangerous people, because this is, again, part of why we trust Jesus. Dangerous people challenge the status quo. Dangerously evil people challenge the status quo for self-serving evil means dangerously good people challenge the status quo because they want to break up the status quo because the status quo is keeping people enslaved and they want to make sure people get free alive, awake, and free. So this particular passage, which is one of my favorite passages about Jesus because it's so unlike the experiences we often have of Jesus. One of my earliest remembers of a picture of Jesus growing up was Jesus sitting in a field with a couple lambs next to him and kids on his lap. Okay, True picture, but that seemed to kind of indicate that's who Jesus is. You know, he sits in, the, sits in the meadow, cool breeze, blowing across his beard, you know, patting kids on the head and, you know, patting little lambs. And Jesus, Jesus, meek and mild. What a great guy. What a really nice guy. Let me read this passage, John chapter 2. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. So what was happening here was they were selling things. If you went to Jerusalem and you were expected to offer a sacrifice or pay a temple tax in the currency of Jerusalem, so it's understandable those coming from foreign lands didn't bring all their animals with them or the currency of Jerusalem. So they needed to exchange. They needed to buy these things. But what was happening is it was being done at an exorbitant profit, exorbitant profit. And they had set up shop right in the temple. I mean, you could have sold somebody animals down the street or whatever, but it had become like this exorbitant profit business. So what it was doing was it was keeping people from connecting with God. All right? Keep that in mind when when we read next because what was happening was people were— The system, the status quo, was keeping people from connecting with God. So what does Jesus do whenever he runs into anything that's keeping people from connecting with God? says, Jesus made a whip from some cords and chased them all out of the temple. This is from a movie. And I love this picture because it's like, is that Jesus? Nobody has that hanging on your wall, do you? He chased them out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle. He scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, turned over their tables. Then, going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Again, he was driven by the fact that these practices, the status quo, was keeping ordinary people like you and me from connecting with God in the way God had wanted them to connect with him in the Old Testament sacrificial system. So his anger was driven by anything that keeps people from connecting with God. Then his disciples remembered this passage, this prophecy in the scriptures, passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. He says, all right, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He was talking about his body, but they thought he was talking about the building. What they exclaimed is, it's taken 40 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and when they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Do you think, if you were one of the disciples and you saw this event happen, you were there, I'm sure they were kind of talking to each other. Wow, Jesus kind of went postal there. Wow, what's going on here? He never was out of control. He never ceased being absolutely full of the Spirit of God. Let me ask you this, though. Would you have trusted him more after this event? Or would you have been like, whoa? Or would you have been like, yeah? Would trust have increased or trust have decreased? Because he's kind of going wild here. But the phrase I'll use again he's being incredibly, dangerously good. Now think about it for a second. I was talking with a friend of mine this week who's here about uh, all the superhero movies that are out now. You know, Iron Man, Man of Steel, whatever else there are. My son knows them all. What do we like about superhero movies? We like the fact that they're dangerously good people. They're dangerous people, take risks, and use their strength for the well-being of others. That's why we like those things. Because deep in our spirits, we are all made in the image of God, and we're made to hunger for this ultimate hero who does dangerously good things. He brings goodness to life. He will shake up whatever status quo is keeping you and I from knowing, connecting with God better, even if that status quo is in your own being. Because what I don't like when Jesus comes into my heart that way, but he will. He comes in, he wants to mess with you. Because if there's something about your pattern of life The way you handle reality, the way you handle conflict, situations, whatever, habits you have, Jesus will come in if you allow him to, and he will break apart the status quo that's keeping you from knowing God. That's what he loves to do. So, let me read a couple other statements of things, ways I like to describe and ways favorite authors of mine have described who Jesus is, all right? Jesus is absolutely brilliant. Right, you ever think about that, do you? Jesus was brilliant. Brilliant. No one understood life better than Jesus. No one knew. No one was smarter than Jesus. I mean, think about that. If you were to go on campus and tell people or talk, and hey, Jesus was the smartest person ever, you probably would get kind of a little bit of a weird reaction. But he's brilliant. He was brilliant in how he handled people, how he handled conflict, how he handled his enemies. He was so brilliant, he knew how to change the molecular structure of water into wine. He was so brilliant, he knew how to change people's issues with skin and leprosy. And he knew how to bring about wholeness when there was not wholeness. He was brilliant. But he was brilliant with people. He was brilliant with those who were broken. He was brilliant with sinners. He was brilliant with the Pharisees who were arrogant. He was brilliant. Nobody had a higher emotional intelligence, spiritual intelligence, or just plain intelligence in Jesus. It was brilliant. But he was brilliant without arrogance. Jesus was enormously compassionate without fear. He was explosive, fierce, and focused. He's wildly free. He's never hurried. He's blunt. He's completely non-manipulative. He's emotional. He's sensitive, and he's tender. He's generous, and he's extravagant. I like this one. He is courageous enough to say what everyone knows but won't say. He's disruptively honest. He's dynamic. He's playful. He's witty. He's humble. And you read that list, and I read that list, and I think, that's what I want to be. And that's the definition of holy. We often think holy is somebody who's kind of sour and kind of this way in church, but holy, you've heard me use the phrase alive, awake, and free. Holiness is being alive, awake, and free in the absolute fullest sense. That's what holiness is. That's what Jesus was like. So then it goes back to the same question then. Okay, do you, go to the next slide here, do I trust him? Okay, now, two different, there's different, trust is kind of an interesting word. Charles Blondin, a famous, uh, what do you call it, tightrope walker actually walked across tightrope with his manager on his back. Now, I might ask you, can you trust that he can do that with another man or a woman? And most of you would say, yeah, I trust. I think if I did it once, he can do it again. But what if I said, you're next? Puts trust a whole different level, doesn't it? Because you can trust that Charles Blondin or anybody who's alive today, you can trust, oh yeah, I believe, yeah, so I believe he can do that. He's already done it before, he's going to do it again. So you're next. Now, now now, what does trust feel like? So how many times do we say to Jesus, yes, I believe you, Jesus, I trust you. Yes, yes, yes. But then he says, okay. I want you to forgive that person. Oh, no, 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 I can't do that. You don't know how much they hurt me. Well, but you said you trusted me. Well, I do, but it's not for that. Anything else, Jesus? Well, okay. Jesus might say, um, if you want to be the greatest, you have to be the least. So in that situation where you are at work or whatever, and you're trying to kind of trump up your position, I want you to start serving people. Well, no, Jesus, I trust you, but don't ask me to do that. I trust you, but don't ask me to do that. Or, what about when Jesus says, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you? Do you trust him when he says that? Do you pray for those who persecute you? If you want to find your life, you'll lose it. If you want to give up your life, you'll find it. If you want to be a leader, you have to serve. You can't serve God and money. Do you trust Jesus when he says, Forgive others? Do you trust him when he says, We can be a part of healing the sick? Do you trust him when he says, don't be afraid and don't worry? Do you trust him when he says, give to those people who are in need? Do you trust him when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no? Quit trying to use manipulative language to get your way with people or to opt out of situations without being honest. Do you trust Jesus when he talked about sexual purity and adultery and divorce and some of the ways in which we look for loopholes to get out of things we don't want to get in? But when Jesus speaks clearly about it, we're like, but Jesus, you don't understand my situation. My situation is different. See, because if you trust Jesus, anything he says to do, any way in which he says life will be lived to the fullest, you do. But that's hard. Because we like the way we're living our lives. It's working, and we just want Jesus to come in as kind of our advisor. Right? Jesus is a great advisor, a great guy. But when he asks us, it's like if I went to the doctor and I said, hey, doctor, I got, I, you know, I, I, got, I got a really bad knee. I never really do. I have a bad knee. And the doctor's told me before, well, you should never run again. Don't ever run on that knee. What if I said to the doctor, okay, I trust you, doctor, but what can you do for me when I do run on it? Because I want to keep running. He's like, well, I told you not to run on the knee. Well, I know that. And I trust you. I'm going to run anyway. But what can you do when I come back with a really bad knee? Well, don't run on it. Well, I understand that. I understand that. But when I come back after I've run on it, what will you do for me? And how many times do you do that to Jesus? Jesus, I trust you, I trust you, and I know, I know you say I have to give up myself, give more of myself to my wife, but I'm probably not going to be able to do that, so what can you do for me? We, we play that. I play that game. So the question is, do you trust him, and will you trust him? I, I don't know all of your stories. I have no idea what some of you your conversations with Jesus and where you're struggling with trusting him. And I don't mean just trusting him for salvation. That's part of the whole picture. We trust him. You know, often hear people say, well, he trusted Jesus as his personal Savior five years ago. Trust is never a past tense verb as a follower of Jesus. It's never I trusted him as my Savior. It's a present tense, I will continue to do this. So if you're a follower of Jesus, what you, the proper way to say it is I, I am trusting him. Not I trusted him once and I got my heaven papers and I'm good to go. But I trust him. Trust him. Now, let me finish with this because this is the last thing I want to say. And I don't mean to be weird with this, but I, I was asking Jesus yesterday, Jesus, what do you want your people to hear about you? What do you want them to know about you? Why, why should they trust you? What do you want them to know? And I think some of this stuff was things I was supposed to say, but you know what? I I heard this, and again, not, not in any way that any of you can't hear him too. You can also hear him in the same way. What I felt Jesus say was just tell them that I love them. Let them know that I love them. Let their trust be based on the fact that I love them. And there's absolutely nothing they can do that can make me stop loving them. There's nothing you can do that can make Jesus stop loving you. Absolutely nothing. There's nothing you can do that make Jesus stop loving you. Nothing, absolutely nothing. I will fail my wife, my wife will fail me. I will fail my kids, my parents failed me. Love, none of our human love is perfect, but we all crave the unconditional life-giving kind of love. We try to get it from people. They never can give it, only Jesus can. And if no other reason to trust Jesus, he loves you. He loves you. I used to put my kids to sleep. I still, I don't put my older kids to sleep. That'd be kind of weird. But my younger ones, I put them to sleep and I often ask them, what can you do to make me stop loving you? And I have a nine-year-old now and I'll say things like, okay, David, what if you didn't obey me? Would I stop loving you? He's like, no, dad, you wouldn't stop loving me. David, what if you spilled your orange juice on the kitchen table because you were a good Would I stop loving you? No, Dad, you wouldn't stop loving me. David, what if you didn't put the so- toilet seat down? Would I stop loving you? No, Dad, you wouldn't stop loving me. David, what if when you're a teenager you tell me you hate me and you hate God, will I stop loving you? Well, no, Dad, you won't. David, what if, we never, what if you ran away and we never saw you again? Would, would I stop loving you? Oh, no, Dad, you wouldn't. And then I say, what can you do to make God stop loving you? He's like, nothing. Nothing. So I don't know, again, I don't know your stories. I don't know what some of you have done or are doing that you feel like have put yourself outside the reach of God's love, but nothing you do can make Jesus stop loving you. Trust him. Trust him to live the kind of life you've always wanted, alive, awake, and free. Let's pray. Jesus, there is absolutely no one like you. Never has been, never will be. We give our praise and our adoration to all kinds of human things that get us excited and give us some degree of small picture meaning and small picture identity, but there is no one, Jesus, like you. And for those here this morning, myself included, who might say, we, Jesus, we want to trust you more. Help us in our unbelief. Help us to tr-. Would you honor that? And for those who still aren't sure, they're wrestling, God, would you envelop them with a sense of your love for them? And would all of us grow in our willingness to trust the specific things, Jesus, you said we could do and should do and do for others? Would we trust you? And uh, Jesus, we love you, and we're grateful, Jesus, that you died, you gave yourself, and then you rose again, which, again, puts that exclamation point on the fact that you can be trusted in everything you say. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. We finish every Sunday with uh, communion at Exodus, and we do that because we're not.